Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Wednesday, January 31st, day 117 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel Dan here with our political correspondent Sam Sokol and news editor Amy Spiro. Hello to you both. Morning. Good morning. We are going to hear about how members of the Knesset House Committee overwhelmingly supported a motion to expel Hadash Ta'al party lawmaker Ofer Kassif yesterday. A Tel Aviv University report recommends shuttering the diaspora ministry. We'll hear why. Amy, who heads our Those We Have Lost project, memorializing the citizens and soldiers who have fallen in the Israel-Hamas war, has noticed a moving trend among mourners. All this and much, much more when we're back. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. First, some headlines. Today, a delegation of Hamas officials is expected to meet with Egyptian intelligence chief to discuss a potential truce for hostages deal. The Israel Defense Forces said yesterday that it had been flooding some tunnels in the Gaza Strip with seawater, confirming what had been an open secret for several weeks. Police announced the death of Sergeant First Class Reran Gvili, who was killed by Hamas on October 7th with his body abducted to Gaza. The Israel Defense Forces also announced the deaths of three soldiers who were killed while fighting in Gaza yesterday, bringing the military death toll from the ground offensive to 223. And some good news. The Water Authority says water levels in the Sea of Galilee rose by 15 centimeters, some six inches over the past 24 hours as a result of heavy rains. Sam, let's turn to the 14-2 vote to advance a member of Knesset Ofer Kassif's impeachment. What happened in the debate? But before you get into that, I would like to remind our listeners who Ofer Kassif is and what is his party. So Ofer Kassif is the only Jewish member of the overwhelmingly Arab Hadash Tal list. And he is one of the more hard-left members of the Knesset. He has a long history of raising the hackles of his opponents on the right, and he has long been controversial within the Knesset. Now, after the war started, he signed on to a public petition expressing support for South Africa's motion in the International Court of Justice accusing Israel of genocide. Now, he wasn't a party to the actual to the actual uh, lawsuit in the International Court of Justice. You need to be a state actor in order to do that, but... His signature on this petition was 
interpreted by many members of Knesset as support for Hamas. The argument went that if you support forcing Israel to stop the war, you leave Israel defenseless. And this is essentially providing support for Hamas. Now, Kassif did not agree. And Chavar Knesset Odet Forer from the right-wing Israel Beitenu party decided to try to invoke a previously never used part of the law, which allows for the impeachment of an MK if they support incitement to racism or armed struggle against the state of Israel. Now, government uh, legal advisors have stated on more than one occasion that they do not believe that Kassif's actions, no matter how odious they have appeared to many of his colleagues across the spectrum, meet that legal bar. He did nothing actionable in terms of actually assisting Hamas, which he has said that he abhors, but his colleagues have decided to move ahead with the uh, with the impeachment. They managed to gather 85 signatures from lawmakers, allowing the matter to go to committee, where it passed after two days of incredibly contentious debate, 14 to 2. The next step will be to bring it to the full Knesset plenum, where it will require a supermajority of 90 lawmakers to actually expel Kassif. Now, whether or not this will succeed is an open question. I've heard some lawmakers, including supporters of the impeachment, express uh, cynicism about the process. They don't believe that it's going to pass. And it's also run into quite a bit of backlash from more moderate and left-leaning parties who have essentially said, even if we disagree with what he has said and what he has done, this is anti-democratic. This is nullifying the will of the voters. So this is one of those really hot-button issues. And I can't see this doing anything but further dividing Israelis uh, during this period. Certainly the debates within the Knesset would frequently over the past two days, descend into acrimony, mutual accusations, screaming matches, and insults. And when I don't expect it to be any different once it reaches the plenum. What's the timeline on that, Sam? So we don't have a timeline at the moment. My understanding is that this becomes something of a political process at this point, where maybe there'll be some horse trading in the background, trying to gain support for one position or another, and the timing of the actual hearing could uh, be influenced by that. Last week, a report from Tel Aviv University Center for the Study of Contemporary European Jewry argued that the Diaspora Affairs and Combating Anti-Semitism Ministry was established, quote, for petty political reason, quote, lacks vision and substance, and has, quote, promoted few initiatives. So I just wonder what makes that different than most other ministries, Sam? You have uh, admirable cynicism there. Well, the truth is that I used to cover this ministry back when I reported on diaspora affairs. And even as someone whose main job revolved around diaspora and who dealt with the ministry on a regular basis, I always had a bit of a question hanging over me of as to what they actually did. They don't do a lot. They do fund some security initiatives for Jewish communities abroad. They put out an anti-Semitism report once a year. And under Naftali Bennett, around a decade ago, there was a push by the ministry to establish a global uh, diaspora apparatus, which largely, uh, which largely failed. Now, 
the criticisms of the ministry have also been uh, shared by some members of Israel's diplomatic community. I've spoken to members of the Israeli Foreign Service who have essentially said that they don't understand the point of the ministry because it doesn't have people on the ground. That in terms of the Israeli Foreign Ministry, the diplomatic service, you have diplomats on the ground in different countries. They understand local conditions. They can liaise with local communities and they can lobby for issues related to anti-Semitism because they know the political landscape and the diaspora ministry has none of that. So when I was working on this story, I reached out to the diaspora ministry, which declined to respond. But I also did speak to former uh, diaspora minister Nachman Shai. And what uh, former minister Shai said was interesting. While he declined to comment on current problems with the ministry itself, he said he feels as important that there is a ministerial position in the cabinet which can serve as sort of a representative of diaspora Jewry. So the question, I guess, is whether or not the ministry does enough to justify its existence, and if it doesn't, whether the solution would be A, to shutter the ministry, or B, to improve it, because, as Shai said, it is a worthwhile endeavor to have somebody representing diaspora concerns at that political level. And perhaps he put somebody in that position that the diaspora actually wants to speak with, which may or may not be the case with Minister Amichai Shikli. Sam, thank you so much for your uh, insights today. It's a pleasure. We'll go to a short break. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning, without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway? to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're back. Amy, you have headed up our Those We Have Lost series since very shortly after October 7th. How are we standing in terms of the number of people that we've covered so far? Yes. So we actually, as of this recording, have published exactly 400 posts. And if I've done the tally correctly, that represents um, 485 people we've written about. Obviously, there are a number of posts that are about families, couples, um, et cetera. So obviously a, a significant number, um, but still a, a, a large ways to go. Each story is so affecting. And while we're reading them, we've both noticed several different trends. Uh, one trend that you brought to my attention yesterday was that uh, more than half of the people who were slaughtered were under the age of 30. 
explain that figure. Yeah, so that's a, a statistic that's been proven out by the numbers. You know, like you, when I saw it, it was you know, a bit of a gut punch, but also not surprising, really, because a huge number of those killed, more than 350, were at the Supernova Music Festival, which definitely had a younger crowd. Most of the ones that we're writing from there, these were 20, 21, 22, 23. Um, so the majority of those are under 30. And there were also several hundred soldiers who were killed, and the majority of those were under 30. So when you look at the overall figure, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty... Pretty astonishing, but not surprising. One of the other things I've noted in reading the stories of those who were slain at the supernova is that so many of these youth were uh, religious at one point and left religion, and they were at this party, which of course was on Shabbat and on a holiday. It was something uh, that we're, we're considering looking into. Another trend that you've brought to our attention is the trend of families, mourners, friends, getting tattoos to memorialize the victims. Yeah, it's definitely a story that came out of, you know, without a doubt, of this project, um, something that over and over again I was seeing when I was writing these stories and writing these obituaries that many people, including immediately, including right away, including during the Shiva at the Shloshim, which is 30 days, um, were getting tattoos uh, to memorialize. Certainly it's more pronounced um, among, you know, the the supernova victims where tattoos are, you know, are sort of a big part of the culture, um, but not just, definitely among other groups as well. Um, and so many of those, um, many people have been getting the date um, of of October 7th tattooed somewhere. Um, but many I've seen have been, which, you know, is, is interesting and, and moving, have been essentially copying tattoos that their loved ones had. And so taking a tattoo that someone they loved who was, who was killed had, and, and in, in many cases, large groups of friends or families getting the same one. So it's something that I wanted to explore, and you uh, gave me the space to do that. Yes. So we have a feature that should be published uh, shortly, delving into this, in which you discussed the trend with several tattoo artists who they themselves uh, see tattooing as a form of therapy. And many of them offered their services voluntarily immediately after. One woman, I remember, stated that she worked for a whole month for free, essentially, to fulfill the demand of these people who want to become, as you write in the piece, a living memorial. Yeah, so the, the tattoo artists are speaking about Shelly Eliel. Um, she lives on a, a, on a kibbutz that had a lot of evacuees. And she told me that the first few weeks, you know, she really just couldn't work. And, and like most of us, you know, was just a little like in shock and, and stuck next to the TV. And, you know, her kids were home. And then, you know, she was talking to an evacuee who said they really wanted to get a tattoo. And it just sort of like clicked something. And she put out this call and she said, you know, people were just coming constantly. And she, after a month, she had to stop giving her services away for free. But she did dozens of people who really wanted, you know, who felt it was really important to them to to get a tattoo uh, to sort of process their their pain and their loss. And, you know, one thing she said to me was that she could understand um, wanting to turn their emotional pain into physical pain, that the fact that a tattoo is painful, it's a needle, right, it causes physical pain, is something that she could understand people seeking out in a way. Um, and that a lot of her sessions were very emotional and people would cry and there was a lot of, talking and processing during the process even. 
You mentioned in your piece one former politician who had the date inscribed on his body. And of course, anyone who sees numbers on an arm just cannot help but think of the Holocaust. And if I'm not mistaken, he made an overt tie to this, no? Yes, Chaim Yellen, who's maybe the politician most closely associated with that part of the country. Uh, he's from Kibbutz Beli himself, has lived there for many years. He's a native of Argentina, but he's lived there for decades. Um, and so he's become one of the most prominent voices since since October 7th. And yeah, not long after, I think it was around 10 days, it was really the first like tattoo that I saw post everything happening. He tattooed the date 7, 10, 23, on the inside of his forearm, very deliberately, very saying, this is the statement I'm trying to make. This is the connection we need to draw. This is the moment that we need to remember forever. Um, and so, you know, people getting the date, certainly they've been getting them all over, but a lot of people have definitely been getting them on their forearm, and it's it's not a coincidence. Amy, I read all of the articles and you write the lion's share of them, but I want to bring awareness to one person that you didn't actually write about. His name is Chief Warrant Officer Ido Credo Rosenthal. And if you read this article, it just sounds like something from an action film. He was a member of the Air Force's elite Shaldag unit. And on the morning of October 7th, when he heard about the massacre occurring, he grabbed his gun and rushed to meet up with his unit, and he boarded a helicopter heading south towards the kibbutz. The, the helicopter dropped them off a short distance away from the epicenter of the battle, and they approached Be'eri in a military vehicle, and fighting ensued. He killed at least 10 of the terrorists, but his unit took heavy losses. Now, during the battle, one of his fellow soldiers was shot in the hand and the chest, and Rosenthal checked out the soldier's wounds and sent him away from the front lines to hide in the vehicle. And the soldier later said that he heard another volley of bullets and turned to see Rosenthal himself was killed on the spot through the neck. Another thing that drew me to his story is his name, Credo, his nickname, which according to Globes, uh, came from his grandmother who called him Queridos, forgive my Spanish, uh, which means dear. And his name in the army morphed together with his first name, Ido. And so it became short for Crazy Ido Credo. Just really an amazing story of a, a real life action hero who fell on October 7th. Do you have a story you'd like to share, Amy? You know, there's there's so many. As as you've noted, I, I've written the majority we've had so far, um, which is in the hundreds at this point. Um, so obviously to say they all stay with me is as a cliche, but it's not wrong in a way. And and it's interesting that you picked um Ito because um, you know, one that's really stuck with me is sort of on the opposite end of this of the scenario, right? You um I wrote recently about Noam Avramovich, who was killed on her third day on base. She had just started. She had finished her training. She enlisted in the summer. Her mother dropped her off on Thursday, October 5th. Um, and listening to her mother at the funeral sort of say, you know, I didn't want to leave you there. I didn't want to drop you off there so close to the border. It felt wrong. And, you know, just thinking about her being so brand new. She had no idea what she was doing. She had no experience, zero idea. Um, you know, I don't think she was on duty at the time, right? So many of the people who were killed were 
were just on the base. They were off duty and they were seeking shelter. Um, you know, they, they were not all killed in battle. Um, so that's definitely one that stuck with me. Um, you know, again, there are so many others. I mean, one I wrote, um, a short while ago, um, about Tammy Peleg Ziv. Um, it stayed with me because of her own history, her own family story that in some way feels so wrapped up with the history of the state of Israel, right? Her brother was killed fighting in the Yom Kippur War, um, you know, which was almost 50 years to the date of October 7th. Um, and then on October 7th, 2004, which again is this like strange, spooky coincidence, her daughter was murdered in a terror attack um, in the Sinai. And so that sort of time of year um, having all these things happen to her, all these things which sort of reflect, you know, the the history of the state um, was definitely something that I've stuck with me and I've thought about a lot. Amy, every night when I read your pieces, tears come to my eyes and I find it so, I'm so grateful to you that you're bringing these human portraits to life, really. So keep up the hard work. I know it is not easy emotionally or physically to complete all of these pieces, but I am so grateful. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I hope people are, are reading and feeling the same way. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have a question or comment about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow. Shalom. Shalom.